Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Ferraresso, and with me, as always, Jack Clabby, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA, in Tampa. On the podcast today, we'll chat with Special Agent Andrew Andy Sakella from the FBI. Andy spent his childhood dreaming of being a naval officer, and like so many of our previous guests, his first career choice wasn't his last. After working cases ranging from white-collar crime to foreign espionage for several years, he's now in a more public-facing role where he spends much of his work life educating the public. Andy, we look forward to a great conversation. But first, hello to my co-host, Mr. Jack Clabby. Jack, good day. Hey, Ernie, good day. Everything's good here uh, in sunny Tampa, Florida. I spent a little time over the Thanksgiving break uh, out of the state. And uh, when I touched back down, I was 75 and sunny. And you think, my goodness, this is a great place to be. So it, not only is it the center of the cybersecurity universe, Florida, and is Tampa the beating heart of that, but oh boy, is it also a pleasant place to be. So you, you got that right. Uh, I, I got to tell you, we've been pretty, I mean, it's just been beautiful down here lately. <laughs> I mean, you're talking, you know, nice, low humidity, warm breezes. <laughs> and that kind of leads us to, uh, you know, what you can find on the, the dark web because yeah, they have well, warm breezes there, right? I, yeah, I'm you guessing. know, anything's for sale and the price would often surprise you. That's it's uh, right. <laughs> so there, <laughs> there was a low, low prices, you know? That's right. It's right. Like if you were to ask me, so all right, here's what I would like to talk about today. So there was a, a good headline um, about the, the CEO of Binance had put out a pretty big warning. He's got a pretty big Twitter following and put out a warning about um, some dark web activity that he had seen. Uh, and it was 487 million WhatsApp numbers. So WhatsApp phone numbers are not necessarily, you know, secret. They're, they're, they're known to the users and people use them to exchange, um, you know, secure messages through the app, right? So yeah. a lot of people, you know, there's 2 billion individual users, I think, like every day. It, it's a pretty high number. But the warning was that these half a billion WhatsApp phone numbers are out there. So two questions. One, you know, how do they, how do they get out there? And then two, what, what's the damage that can be done with them? So I guess th there's not good reporting on how they got out there. One of the speculation is that it was done through some form of scraping mm. because you can get access to numbers through the regular use of WhatsApp. You can automate that, I guess, is the, the potential is the, the speculation. And that's what scraping is, right? So website scraping has been around for a while. You write a program that automates something that you can do yourself. So you can visit all these websites, you can pull down, for example, pricing information. But if I know the steps I take on every website, I can go ahead and just write a script that does that and it pulls in all the HTML information, I can translate that and then suddenly I have all the pricing information out there. And then what do the bad guys do with it? Well, if you have verified numbers for any texting service, right? WhatsApp could be something else, that just makes it more likely that a phishing campaign uh, would work. And so the bad guy here who is advertising these numbers had the data set allegedly broken down by country. And so it was something like 32 million US allegedly verified phone numbers through WhatsApp. And I was, I was looking for what this is worth because I, in my mind, yeah. I had a number I thought it was worth. It was being sold for $7,000, right? So, which is both a lot of money for something that anyone could buy. It's not like you buy it. What's well, not the Mona Lisa where you buy it once and you have the only copy. Yeah. This can be sold. It's a volume seller. You can sell unlimited amounts of these things. Um, but it's also not that much money for 32 million US-based um, phone numbers. So I don't know if that tells you something about the price. I don't know what that tells you, but I was surprised at that number. Yeah, it um, does seem, because I, so I, I, you think about it, what it is that somebody's going to, what they're going to use it for, because that's still... Uh, you, you I, I guess nowadays, I mean, you're buying a big chunk of data because uh, you still have to go through it, right? You still have to go through and, uh, or you just use it as a big, you know, I'll call it a big spray type of, of attack yeah. where you're just going to broadcast to as anyone and you only need two or three to, to, to connect. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not right. Cause it's, um, it's, a, if the de if it's not broken down in more detail, 
then you're not gonna be able to do any kind of spear fishing with it. So, yeah. um, but the, it did bring up a conversation about this idea of scraping and yeah. the law is all over the place on it. There's some, that's a good, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If it's publicly available and you just automate it or is it publicly available? Or yeah. It, so yeah. that's right. So there are some, you know, there have been some cases where one company, two companies compete with each other. Um, and the first company goes and runs some form of scraping on the second company to pull down all its information sort of in real time to have perfect intelligence on the public offerings of the other company. Um, you know, there's been, there's some evidence uh, or at least there's some case law in the ninth circuit, which is out in California, that that sort of thing absent more is not a violation of a one particular federal statute, the computer fraud and abuse act. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not the violation of other state law principles that might be in play between those two countries. You got companies, but that doesn't tell you much about, you know, think about a news aggregator that writes scripts that just goes and yeah. pulls from pay websites information down and immediately puts it up. In some cases, that can probably be okay. In other cases, you might have a intellectual property violations depending on the facts. But, you know, if you're uh, an entrepreneur and you're out there and your business model depends on taking things from other websites in an automated fashion, you do have to be careful and give some thought to it. Um, and, and definitely talk to your counsel about it. But uh, there are things too that companies can do in resisting that kind of web scraping. There are ways that they can set up, um, you know, put things behind a username and password login, yeah. um, even if they're publicly available to try to control the way that that information gets disseminated. That makes it a little harder. And then there's kind of cooler, newer web scraping that relies on APIs that are not yours that exist and I think it's probably a little clearer that if you're borrowing someone else's API, you know, I think you're in better standing if you get their permission before you just start taking yeah. um, things from that API. So it's a, it's a, uh, it was good to see uh, the term's been around for a while, but it was good to see folks have a little kind of more conversation about it. Um, scraping. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because, you know, like you say, there's, there's so much publicly available information Um and then, of course, uh, so how about that? I'll look at it from the, from the intelligence community side, right? Uh, if you look at it, it's the, the part that, well, sometimes the, quote, collection, the sources of collection can be really classified. Uh, the actual part that makes it even more uh, sensitive is the, the analysis that happens upon all the collected information. So meaning like the scraping yeah. of it, you may be able yeah. to get all this data, but it's meaningless until somebody actually turns it into something that you can do something with. Yeah. And that's when it becomes even more sensitive. So like in this case, yeah, okay, yeah, I pay seven grand <laughs> for 32 million phone numbers. Yeah. Uh, to some people, they're going to say, okay, that's just how many digits worth of numbers. That's a lot of damn numbers. I'll play uh, more money for less. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. but if but in the, the hands of a trained uh, analytical person, that can probably turn into something, uh, something pretty... Uh, pretty lucrative for them. I guess that's the way to, to do it. So uh, that's yeah, that, the, but I think that's where we can start getting into the, uh, how, you know, large data sets are going to be utilized uh, going forward. But you wonder too, like at some point when the data sets are large enough, you're just guessing, you could probably just guess numbers. I'm yeah, sure well, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure they, they do that. Yeah. How many, how many in here is one, two, three, four. There it is. Like, <laughs> you know, I got it. Uh, that's right. You've been looking at my passwords again. Yeah. yeah. One, two, three. I thought it was just zero, 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 zero. Is that, no, that's mine. <laughs> ah, sorry. Sorry. Uh, but uh, like I say, it, you mentioned an interesting part about it is the, uh, you know, when does it get to be uh, a crime to do that? Uh, so I, I think that's, uh, especially as we start moving out here into the future of more and more data, more and more big chunks of data that's available and people starting to scrape and things. So uh, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, uh, and that being said, we're going to dive into a little bit more about the world of law enforcement. After our quick break, we'll return to talk to Special Agent Sakella about his journey from a nuclear submarine uh, to FBI Special Agent. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's a pretty cool journey. So stick around. Looking for more no password required content? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at No Password Pod. All right, welcome back. Our guest is Andy Sakella, the private sector coordinator for the FBI's Tampa division. Andy, 
Welcome to No Password Required. How are you, sir? Good, thanks. How are you doing, Ernie? You know, every day is a little bit better than the last. Every day. Hey, every day that you wake up breathing, that's, that's a victory in my book. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. Andy, can you tell us a little bit about your career path and how you became, you know, in your current role? Just trace, chase us through that. Sure. Do you want to start back pre-FBI or starting from the FBI? That'd be, that'd be great. Like even just from when you first got interested in law enforcement, as far back as you can. Yeah. Cause that okay. this helps our, okay. our listeners learn sure. about. Well, I'm getting old, so I got a long background. So, uh, so <laughs> it might take a couple minutes, but, uh, my childhood dream was not to be an FBI agent. I, I never thought about that. Never showed any interest in it. Uh, I, I grew up, uh, close to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And we used to take family trips there every year. So my dream as a kid growing up was to, uh, become a naval officer, uh, graduate from the Naval Academy. So I was fortunate enough to be accepted into the, into the academy. And I uh, graduated with a nuclear engineering degree. And I spent 18 months in nuclear power school and then reported to the USS Batfish, a fast attack nuclear powered submarine. Wow. Submarine life really wasn't uh, what I expected it to be. Uh, the idea of spending my life uh, in a big tin can underwater away from family and friends for months at a time really wasn't how I wanted to spend my life. Yeah. So I completed my five years of obligated service with the Navy and then uh, got out of the Navy, went into the private sector where I managed a manufacturing plant for about seven years. And then about a year after 9-11 hit, I got this crazy idea to join the FBI. I say about a year, it was literally on the one year anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And I just got this moment of inspiration, for lack of a better word. Uh, up until that point, I had never thought about uh, the FBI or even any kind of law enforcement before. Uh, but as we all know, sometimes life takes us in certain directions or presents yeah. us with opportunities that we don't really expect or foresee. So I applied to the FBI. Uh, took about 15 months for me to get into the FBI. Uh, I had a couple medical issues. Uh, I had to have laser surgery because my eyesight I couldn't pass the vision test. And then during my uh, application process, right towards the end of the application process, when I already had my, uh, my orders, my class date at the FBI Academy, I'd given my notice at work. During my FBI physical examination, they discovered I had a hernia. So of course that put everything on hold. Oh, you man. can't go through that type of training when you have a hernia. So that set me back about two or three months. Uh, so instead of starting in December, I started in March. So about six weeks into the FBI Academy, you get your orders. So it's a, it's a huge deal. Uh, it, and when I say you get your orders, it, it's what field office you're going, you're okay. going to be re, uh, assigned to. It doesn't tell you what you're going to be doing in that field office. That comes later on. Uh, so I remember everybody is just, uh, there's such anticipation. People, obviously, it's going to affect the rest of your life where your orders uh, are going to send you. Uh, so I just remember opening that envelope and seeing I'm getting assigned to the Washington DC field office. And I, I had very mixed, mixed feelings about being assigned to that office because it's so close to headquarters, the DC field office. So it's a separate entity, separate building. It's, it's one of uh, the DC field office is one of 56 field offices across the country. So there's technically no differentiation uh, that sets that DC field office apart from the other 55 field offices. It's just one of them. But just because of the proximity to FBI yeah. headquarters, it's just literally a mile away. Obviously, uh, there's more um, oversight from FBI headquarters than any other field office. Oversight? You're be that's being polite. Man. That, that, I'm trying to be politically correct when I say that. So, <laughs> so I can remember they some of the parked their cars in your driveway. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I can remember some of the instructors at Quantico saying, oh, boy, you're going to, we call it WFO, the Washington field office. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, well, it turns out that I, I loved the Washington field office. And I'll get into that, why I had such a great experience there later on. But so, so that was the first orders. I know I'm going to DC. So at some point uh, towards the end of my, I don't know, 22 weeks or however long it was at, at the FBI Academy, then you find out what your specific assignment is. And so I got a call uh, from the, uh, the supervisor. I was assigned to a squad. I got a call from the supervisor in, at the Washington field office, WFO. And she said I was going to be assigned to working public corruption. So my first, my first thought is, what the heck is public corruption? My second thought is, I came in to the FBI because of 9-11. I want to pre prevent the next terrorist attack. Yeah. I have no mm -hmm. interest in getting assigned to a public corruption squad. 
especially because I don't even know what public corruption is. But <laughs> I figured, you know what, I'm going to be a good soldier. I learned that from the military. I'm going to, if this is what the FBI wants me to do, I'll be happy to do that. I'll spend two or three years uh, learning how to be an investigator, making a good name for myself, getting a good reputation. And then I'll have an opportunity to transfer to a terrorism squad later on. And I remember, so I said, I said the supervisor called me for that squad. And a few days later, the assistant special agent in charge, who, who was my supervisor's boss, she called me as well. And she said, I, I picked you for this job. I looked at your background. We, we need uh, uh, strong performers to be on the squad because public corruption is such a, a uh, challenging type of investigation to work. So this is why I, I picked you to come onto this, onto this squad. So it's, it's sort of hard to say, well, to second guess your boss's boss when you never even haven't even graduated from the FBI Academy yet. So I figured they knew what they were doing. And I would, like I said, be a good soldier and learn that role as an FBI agent. Well, it turned out I love public corruption. So I spent five wait a minute. Years- let, me, let me just get that straight. Did you just say you love public corruption? Not, I mean, I mean, not, yeah, I mean not, you know, being, that- not me being corrupt. Oh, uh, okay, good. But good. thank you for clarifying <laughs> that. But investigating corrupt public <laughs> officials, how's that? Uh, and and that, that's that, that's a passion of mine because I, I am obviously a, a, a public official. I'm an a, a appointed uh, public official, obviously not elected. But and we can talk more about like insider threat and corrupt public officials later on if you'd like. But that is sort of near and dear to my heart. I have worked public corruption and insider threat as both a field agent and a supervisor for 16 of my 19 years in the FBI. And again, I'm passionate about it. To have someone in a position of trust who is uh, abusing that trust, abusing that position to enrich themselves is is uh, extremely distasteful to say the least. And uh, I wanna use whatever means we have necessary to uh, build cases against those people that engage in that type of abuse of trust and to make sure that they, they face justice. So after my five years of being a field agent working public corruption cases, I had the opportunity to go to FBI headquarters as a supervisor where I was assigned to the International Corruption Unit. In that role, I managed a team of agents that were deployed in Afghanistan, conducting corruption and fraud investigations. The FBI was one of nine federal government agencies that made up the International Contract Corruption Task Force. So we had agents in Iraq and Afghanistan and then other places around the world where there was significant government contracts and fraud associated with that, with those contracts. So I got to take numerous trips to Afghanistan while I was at the International Corruption Unit. And then I came down to Tampa in 2012 as a supervisor for the White Collar Crime Squad. It's a pretty uh, common path. Someone becomes a a field agent, goes to headquarters as a supervisor, and then using their supervisory experience at headquarters, then they get a job as a field supervisor. So I came down here to Tampa as a supervisor for the White Collar Crime Squad, where I managed a team of special agents, forensic accountants, and intelligence analysts that were responsible for investigating a whole host of different white collar crime investigations, uh, still doing public corruption, investigating public corruption, not committing public corruption, uh, <laughs> investigating government fraud. Uh, but the squad was uh, responsible for all different types of white collar crime, and that included healthcare fraud mortgage fraud, bank fraud, money laundering, identity theft, credit card fraud, check fraud, and a host of other different types of violations as well. So I did that for seven and a half years. And then I've been in my current role as the private sector coordinator for the last three years. Uh, The FBI's policy for field supervisory positions, which is what I was uh, in my prior assignment here in Tampa, that's a seven-year time limit or term limit. And so after that seven years was up, I needed to find another job because I didn't want to go back to headquarters. Uh, and my predecessor in this role as the private sector coordinator had just retired. So it opened the door for me to take on this role. And in my current role as private sector coordinator, I am the main liaison between the FBI and all of our non-government, non-law enforcement partners in the 18 counties that make up the FBI Tampa division in central Florida. My, it's a liaison job, so I don't do a- any cases. I don't work sources or anything like that operational anymore. It is purely a liaison and training role. And where I spend most of my time is in providing presentations or threat awareness briefings to 
private sector partners. Uh, and that includes companies, uh, NGOs, nonprofits, uh, professional associations, community organizations, as well as in some cases, uh, law enforcement and government agencies as well. And I have 22 different presentations that I offer on a whole host of different topics. I have five cybersecurity presentations that cover different aspects of cybersecurity. I also do uh, insider threat, white collar crime, business email compromise, economic espionage, election crimes, public corruption. I am working on my 23rd presentation that'll be done in the next couple of weeks. One of the most popular presentations that I've given in the last year was the Russian cyber threat, which was the genesis behind that was the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, an increased threat awareness of the potential of additional or increased threat activity by Russian state-sponsored actors. And I had a, I have received a number of requests for other country-specific cyber threat briefings. So my current presentation that I'm working on is a combined presentation on the uh, Iran-China cyber threat. And I'll be done that in the next couple of weeks. And then at that point, I'll be offering that as in addition to the other 220 presentations that I already offer. That's Andy. I've seen, had the opportunity to see you talk a number of times, both in connection with Cyber Florida and, and at other events in, in the greater sort of Tampa area. And you, just for the, for the audience, you're extremely effective. And I love that the FBI has this role in this community. And, and we're really, um, you, you can't say enough about how valuable it is. So thanks for, for all you're doing, particularly you for your some of the, some of the numbers when you share them about how large this size, you know, we, we talk about it often on an individual company basis, but some of the numbers about wire fraud diversion, you know, mm -hmm. that's lost on it on an annual basis are just, just they're, they're like, they sound like they're made up numbers, but they're real numbers. And they probably underestimate by a large factor what's actually out there. Right. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, absolutely. My, 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 uh, one of my former bosses, uh, she came here from, from uh, another FBI office uh, as the assistant special agent in charge. And she was amazed at the scale of the fraud cases in Tampa division. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to have a fraud case of, of 10 or $20 million or more in losses. You know, we worked several of those on, on my squad. We worked a $15 million one uh, wire fraud case. We worked two $40 million um, mortgage fraud cases. We had a $40 million uh, healthcare fraud case. And those are just off the top of my head, just a few yeah. of the ones that, that were huge. Again, I was just talking to a supervisor this morning. They just opened up a $2 million fraud case. And that's actually on the smaller side when it comes to loss amount. So again, it's just, it's just staggering when you know, pe people will contact us and they, they've lost $100,000, which is obviously a lot of money. Yeah. But it, in the scheme of things, compared to the typical loss amount from our average fraud case, it, we, that's small potatoes. And I don't yeah. mean to, again, make it sound like $100,000 is nothing because sure, surely it is. But again, compared to the typical dollar amount of the fraud case referrals and complaints that we get, that is a small amount of money. How do you think the the private sector sort of, when you move from the role as a supervisor to your current role, has have companies changed the way they interact with you? Do you feel like you're treated differently? Um, what, how has that been? So I had a, a lot of interaction with the private sector in my previous role, in particular with financial institutions, because okay. again, I was responsible for all different types of, of, of fraud schemes. So, so I also had a lot of interaction with uh, the healthcare providers and, and health insurance companies. So I already had that network of, of private sector companies, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in this role. And I'm in a much better position now than I was before to share information and intelligence, especially through the context of these threat awareness briefings with these organizations. I did those yeah. occasionally in my role, but I was also responsible for uh, the day-to-day -day administration and management of a very active criminal squad. So I didn't have a lot of time to do those presentations. Whereas now that that's really my main goal, my, my main job responsibility. And, and so I think uh, because again, I'm, I'm one of the faces of the FBI Tampa division, my job is to engage with these organizations. I am much more available or accessible to the organizations, or at least I hope I am. What, one of the questions that's come up, you know, it's been around for five, 10 years now, almost since since the dawn of cybercrime, but a company is is the victim of a criminal hack, right? A criminal act that's penetrated its systems. And one of the questions they have is when to call law enforcement, how to engage with law enforcement. And they, you know, it's they're the victim of a crime, but they're also worried that if they, 
reach out to law enforcement. Law enforcement's going to say to them, okay, well, I want to see everything and, and we'll start to sort of investigate them. What, what do you say to a company that has that concern and is planning for, for these events? Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll address that last question first. Yeah. I don't know of a single incident, incident where the FBI investigated a victim after that victim came forward and and uh, reported that they were the victim of, of, of a crime. That We're very sensitive about re-victimizing a victim organization. Uh, the closest that I can think of is a hospital that uh, had a breach and one of their, actually, I'm sorry, what wasn't a breach? One of their employees stole uh, patient information, you know, their, their PII, yeah. including their Medicare or, or insurance information. And the company reported that to us, but ultimately they, they were, uh, they had a HIPAA violation. HIPAA is the health. Yeah. health Vulnerability Act because they didn't take appropriate measures to safeguard their information. But I, I, I I think in the original complaint, when they came to us, they said that they they, they knew that they were guilty of, of that breach anyway. Okay. Uh, so so, but again, again, that's our, our focus is is to help that company recover from that incident and to collect evidence related to that incident. We have it's not like we're looking for work. We have allegations <laughs> that come in every day. So we don't look at these as opportunities. Oh, hey, let's look at this victim that reported this. Our goal is to help that victim remediate, recover from that incident. Um, in, you know, in terms of when law enforcement should be contacted, two points on that. One is we encourage organizations to include in its incident response plan, a call to the FBI. And, and that shouldn't just be the generic FBI Tampa office number or whatever your closest field office is. Hopefully you have already had a relationship with the FBI, your local FBI rep, which brings me to my second point, which is we encourage organizations to reach out to us and to establish that relationship. We would call it left of boom. Boom is the bad thing that happens. So left of boom <laughs> before that bad thing goes, goes down. One of the reasons for that, well, there's a few reasons for that. The FBI isn't primarily concerned with prevention. We saw prevention, especially in the, again, in the context of outreach and given these threat awareness briefings, we're more on the right of boom in opening an investigation to collect evidence related to that incident, to identify the subject, uh, to, again, build a criminal case where we can charge that subject. But we do have some role in prevention. And, you know, for, so for example, in addition to these threat awareness briefings, we, we are uh, sometimes invited to uh, observe TTXs, tabletop exercises that organizations conduct. And you know, we, we don't set up those TTXs. We are there in an advisory capacity, especially when it comes to weighing in in terms of what the FBI would do if this was a real world incident. Uh, I, I, I've been at several of those TTXs myself. Uh, in every instance, the organization that invited us to participate in that TTX was uh, express their uh, great appreciation for our participation yeah. because again we're not we're not there to figure out what the company's doing wrong and to see if you know we can we can open up a case against that company we're there to help the company yeah. and having our presence there uh, helps them again through that remediation and recovery which is again why we encourage organizations to establish their relationship with the FBI before something bad happens and to include as one of the first steps in your incident response plan, contacting the FBI. There's there's some, for smaller organizations maybe that aren't running tabletops or, or that would not involve the FBI in the tabletop, some, sometimes they're, they've learned about IC3, right? This, this website where you can go to and file a complaint. Can you talk a little bit about how IC3 works and you sure. know, how businesses should, should use it? Sure. So the, F, the IC3 is the Internet Crime Complaint Center. It is part of FBI headquarters. They're located up in West Virginia. It is the uh, clearinghouse for all internet and wire fraud complaints. So when we're contacted by a victim, one of the first things that we do is ask them, if they haven't done so already, to file a complaint with the IC3, which is www.ic3.gov. Uh, the website is very user-friendly. It's mostly drop-down selections, as, as well as some, some uh, text entry fields. but regardless of, of what organization or what individual has lost money, how much that loss amount is, it doesn't matter. We tell everyone to file a complaint with the IC3. 
the IC3 then reviews the, every complaint that comes in. And if, if that loss based on dollar amount, uh, number of victims and other factors, if that loss is deemed significant enough, the IC3 will refer that complaint to the local FBI field office uh, based on, on, on the potential venue or jurisdiction. Okay. Even if it doesn't meet that threshold in terms of the loss amount, that information goes into this humongous FBI database. And that database collects every complaint anyone's ever filed. And another thing that the IC3 does is once they get that complaint in, let's say they got a complaint against ABC Industries. And the, com the complaint is that ABC Industries is engaged in some kind of consumer fraud. And it's the loss amount is $100,000. Well, that, that's a relatively low loss amount. But the analysts at the IC3 will then review the IC3's database for any other entries related to ABC Industries. And they may find 10 other victims that filed similar complaints. Again, e any one of those complaints in itself isn't enough of a loss amount, but you get 10 of those $100,000 a piece, now you're at a million dollars. So that would catch the IC3's attention and they would again refer that then to the appropriate field office. The, the IC3 also does pattern and trend analysis. They look at um, any new tactics or techniques that the bad actors are utilizing. And every year, the IC3 publishes an annual report named, not surprisingly, the IC3 annual report. It is available on FBI.gov, so it's publicly available. It's about 15 or 20 pages. It contains a lot of really good information related to internet and wire fraud. A lot of that statistical information, including the numbers that you referenced earlier, uh, are, are contained on that. It breaks down uh, based on the number of complaints what were the most popular or commonly reported fraud schemes based on the loss amount? The IC3 report has the, the in, in order of which schemes resulted in the most losses, it lists out all the different types of scams. Uh, the, the, the top three are always business email compromise, uh, investment fraud and romance scams, and then all the other like tech support scams and, and uh, of, of uh, ransomware and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, are, are listed again in order of, of losses. The report also contains, in addition to the, I'm sorry, the statistical information, it also has a lot of uh, narrative information that talks about the, the different schemes that are out there. It mentions ways that organizations can take to protect themselves from these different schemes. So really, really good information, not just for organizations and businesses, but for individuals as well. That's cool. Just a lot of, uh, our audience are folks who are on their path to a cybersecurity career. And we do hear about the FBI, you know, needing assets who are interested in cybersecurity, even, both as FBI employees and then as contractors who might be working with them. What advice would you give to somebody who wanted to get involved with cybersecurity and these types of crimes, either as an FBI agent or as a contractor? What would their path sure. look like? Sure. We primarily look for experience. And it, for most IT related jobs, you don't necessarily have to have those certifications. The FBI will give our IT folks uh, the training that they need to, to do their job. So just because you don't have those certifications doesn't mean you can't apply for a, a position uh, in IT with the FBI. And that's especially true if you wanna get an entry level position. Let's say you aspire to become a computer scientist. You come into the FBI right out of college you start uh, at an entry level position, maybe in a, as an administrative specialist or something along those lines. And you know, you're 20, you know, in early 20s when you join the FBI, you will have uh, ample opportunity to move up within the FBI. And if you get into one of those IT related job specialties, the FBI will pay for you to go to whatever training to get those certifications that you need to do that job. Uh, one thing that really surprised me when I joined the FBI was how many opportunities there were in the FBI. Now we're a relatively small organization, 39,000 employees. And I put that in the context of like the Navy. I would have thought the Navy with 600,000 or 500,000 sailors would have had a lot of opportunities. The thing is in the, in the, in the Navy, and I can't speak for the other branches, yeah. but at least in the Navy, like I, I was a nuclear, nuclear trained officer. I, I was pretty much locked into that career path, which, which makes sense in some ways because the Navy spent a lot of money on my training through the Naval Academy, as well as through 18 months of nuclear power school and submarine school. So they don't want that training to go to waste. So they want you to be a nuclear trained officer and be on a submarine or a nuclear powered surface ship for your career. I get that. So there's not a lot of leeway once you get in to, to the Navy. 
The FBI, on the other hand, has so many opportunities. It's, it's really mind blowing. If I look back on my career, my biggest regret is I only get to go through uh, a 120 year career as an agent. I can't do it all <laughs> over again. And I would like to do something maybe completely different. Maybe I would get into cyber as soon as I could, or, or I don't know if I was a better marksman in better physical shape, maybe I joined SWAT or HRT. Just the, the uh, uh, ability to go through and experience some of the opportunities that I just missed out on just because you, 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 there's only so many hours in the day, you can only do so much. Uh, I, I just can't overemphasize the, how many opportunities there are on the FBI. I'll give you a, a, a couple examples uh, if, if, we, if we have time to go over, over oh, yeah. that. So, for example, one of one of my agents, he worked for me for several years. He he was a healthcare fraud investigator. He had worked healthcare fraud in Miami. He went to headquarters as a healthcare fraud supervisor for, for a couple of years that came down to Tampa, again, working healthcare fraud. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to do something different. So he became a technically trained agent or a TTA, as we call them. So this is the kind of person that would turn this uh, this seemingly innocuous um, beverage container into a recording device. So, you know, he, he plants tracking devices on cars. He puts pole cameras up to, you know, to in, in, on, uh, on telephone poles and in other uh, seemingly innocuous looking locations. And I just you know, that's what they call me week. seemingly <laughs> innocuous. That's yeah. what they refer to me. He, he, he was on, he was, I saw him last week and you know, he's been doing this now for five years and he loves it. He, he gets such a variety in his job. He doesn't work cases anymore. He purely supports the cases of other agents. That's awesome. Um, uh, another opportunity, the FBI has, and a lot of people don't know this, the FBI has its own mini air force, both, both fixed wing and rotary aircraft. And they're piloted by special agents who are pilots. A few years ago, we had a shortage of pilots. So the FBI said, if you're an agent and you want to go to flight school, we will pay for you to go to flight school. You just have to agree to to spend, you know, to fly so many hours every month in support of the aerial surveillance program, in which you have to do anyway for your FAA certification. That's an email. If yeah, I that, got it, I would want to check it for yeah, spam. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's exactly so like, correct. I'd be on that in a second. You, 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 the FBI pays for you to go to flight school, and you do it on government time. I mean, that's yeah. awesome. It's, it's a great opportunity. Again, those are just two like, you know, pretty simple, small examples of that. Another um, go, going on the non-agent side, uh, she, she was an intern for me. So we do have a college internship program. And she interned on my squad for a couple of years. And then after she graduated, graduated, she got hired at an entry level position. But she had a uh, bachelor's degree in behavioral science. Her goal was to work at the behavioral analysis unit up at FBI headquarters at the, at the laboratory up in uh, Quantico, Virginia. And a couple of years ago, there was an opening, she put in for it and she got that position. She's still in her, in her late 20s, so she's relatively young, but that was her dream of becoming a behavioral anal, uh, analyst at the behavioral analysis unit. And she, she, she achieved that dream by starting out again as an intern entry level position. And then uh, she, she, she got to accomplish that goal. So, uh, so many different opportunities we have uh, a nurse on staff here. We have a couple auto mechanics that work at the FBI Tampa office. Who think who would think that you could be an FBI employee when you're an auto mechanic? Well, we have a fleet of government vehicles and somebody needs to That's keep cool. those vehicles running. So we have our auto mechanics. Literally, we have 400 different job specialties within the FBI. If you can think, if you have some kind of skill set, I can guarantee that the FBI needs that skill set. So, man, I, where do I sign up? Oh, wait a minute. Cool. I'm probably a little on the uh, the upper end of your age spectrum. but uh, So that's that, that's another misconception. People think, oh, I, I have to be a certain age to join the FBI. That only go. applies for special agents. Aha. The age limit for special agents is before you take your, your oath, when you report to Quantico, you have to be uh, before your 37th birthday. So I knew one guy that literally took the oath on day 304 of his 36th year of life. <laughs> so he just made that right, right by one day, but he still made it. Uh, all the other positions in the FBI, the non-agent positions, you can be any age. There is no age limit. I want to, um, Andy, I just want to ask you, because you've done so many different things. What's a, is there a memorable story that you can share? Like I'm an FBI agent story that you can share with us. So this might sound like a kind of a silly story, but uh, th this is one of the first cases that I worked. I'd only been an agent for a, uh, for a, a couple years, and uh, it was it turned out to be what at the time was the largest antitrust case that the FBI and the Department of Justice had ever investigated. And uh, so I was in Washington D.C. at the time at the field office, and there were subject. It was a, it was a price fixing uh, antitrust case for collusion among the airlines, okay. uh, and about a dozen airlines were ultimately 
charged in this investigation. Uh, so the subject airlines uh, were located all over the U.S. And so in, in, um, it was Valentine's Day where this investigation was going over and we were executing search warrants across the entire country. So there were about 250 FBI personnel in six different uh, states that were involved in, in, in my case. And I, I went to Chicago because we had one location in Chicago. And it was, again, Valentine's Day morning. It's incredibly cold, as you can imagine, because it's 5.30 Chicago in, in February. It, it yeah. is. The balmy and, tropics and, of Chicago. And I, I'm talking to two very senior FBI agents from the Chicago office. They volunteered to support this case. It's not a Chicago case. They have nothing to do with it. Yeah. It's Valentine's Day. It's cold as heck. And these guys, just they're, both of them are like, just let us know whatever you need. We're here to help you. And I was like, this is amazing. What kind of an organization does a, a, a relatively you know, brand new agent like me getting support from these agents with 15 or 20 years in uh, under those circumstances? And I think, what other organization are you going to work for that has that sort of, of loyalty and dedication by its employees? Yeah. I say it's the, the, kind of, the, the kind of organization where the guys are like, yeah, it uh, turns out, uh, what day is it? Valentine's Day, huh? Yeah, listen, are there any florists open? No. <laughs> hey, Andy, what is it? Uh, you, uh, you need me to come down there? Yeah, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Sorry, honey, it's not me. It's work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll return with Ernie's Lifestyle Polygraph in a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required Podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right. Welcome back. Andy, are you ready for the lifestyle polygraph? I'm always ready. All right. So just you probably are aware that the lifestyle polygraph is often used uh, to assess a person's suitability to receive access to some of our nation's most sensitive secrets. Uh, but here on our show, we use it to assess someone's suitability um, uh, to engage with us in witty banter about a great many topics. <laughs> and so here we go. It's a series of five questions, and we're going to start here. Here's the first one. This is, this, is, I, this is actually a pretty good one. Have you ever opened up a case and read the briefing and said, there is no way that this can be true, only to find out that, in fact, it was true? So we, we one of my most challenging responsibilities as, as a squad supervisor is trying to figure out what cases we're going to open. Because as I mentioned earlier, we get complaints, referrals, tips, literally every day. And I joined the FBI because I wanted to put bad people in jail. So I want to open up every case that, that, that we get. <laughs> uh, but that was, a, that was a hard lesson learned as a brand new field supervisor that we can't do that because we just have too many, too many tips and complaints and not enough agents to work them. So I learned quickly after reporting to the FBI Tampa division that I had to be judicious or selective about the kind of cases that I assigned to my agents. So there was one allegation that we got from a, um, a cooperating defendant who provided information about this uh, large conspiracy by a local gang. And it was a bank fraud conspiracy. And the local gang supposedly recruited bank employees to uh, illegally obtain access to customer account information, and then give the once they got into that account with through a username and password, provide that information to the co-conspirators, the gang members, who would then, uh, pretending to be the legitimate account holder, uh, gain access to those accounts and then siphon money off of those accounts. I read that. I'm like, there's no. This is like far. Yeah. This is the plot of some you know movie or, or FBI TV show or something like that. So my process for evaluating or triaging complaints was I would assign all these complaints to one of my analysts to run database checks to see if there were any other complaints related to this uh, uh, alleged subject for the complaint that we were looking at. And so I, I th that's what I did with this one. I gave it to one of my analysts and she found some other reporting that indicated that a bank had reported this exact same type of activity. And I'm oh, like, wow. oh my gosh, as far-fetched as this is, I guess it's true. So that case is still ongoing, so I can't talk too much about yeah. it. But to date, we have charged uh, five bank employees and a wow. half a dozen members of the gang 
with <laughs> this criminal conduct. So it, it's even, you know, that the loss amount wasn't huge, but again, you have bank employees, this goes back to the insider threat that I talked about earlier, bank employees in positions of trust, man, giving bad guys access to your bank account and stealing money from your account. Like <laughs> that, that's something that any, all of us have bank accounts. So it doesn't matter how much or how little you have in a bank account. You don't want anybody to get access to that account, and steal your money. So this is, wow. this is the kind of case that every one of us can appreciate, but, but yeah, I, I, I would never have believed that that allegation was true, but sure enough. And it's been, a, it's been a great case. Is that, uh, I mean, I don't know. You probably can't talk too much about it, but you know, is it like the the bank just disgruntled? Listen, I hate this bank, so I'm going to steal from the people in the from the 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 people who put their money in there. Because that really doesn't hurt the bank. I mean, where they just there's the gang like, yeah, you get ten percent. They, they they did it, and it's it's interesting because when when the the gang conceived of this scheme, they specifically targeted younger employees at those banks, people that they thought were good because they were younger, they were more naive, more susceptible to manipulation and whatnot. So, you know, they didn't go after the 50 and 60 year old bank managers because they figured that that'd be a hard sell. So they went after these you know, younger individuals who they believed uh, were more likely to, to, to flip and, and work with the gang members. And uh, it was it was apparently a, a, a pretty good model for them to follow, because, as, as I said, they recruited at least five bank employees uh, to engage in this sort of activity. High, re high responsibility, relatively low pay, yes. low loyalty. Yeah. And, and oh, that, we won't, we won't get into it now, but uh, some of the cases I worked as a public corruption investigator were corrupt prison officials, corrections oh. officers who were smuggling contraband to inmates in the DC jail. And we would, we would generally arrest them after two bribe payments of a few hundred dollars a piece. So you know, they're, they're being arrested on, on a, with a relatively small bribe amount. But there's no, we, we have no idea how much other money they yeah. took, right, in yeah, yeah. When, when they did this. But, uh, and, you know, that's, a, again, a position, a person in a position who has a relatively low pay. It's not a very prestigious position uh, for the most part, not a lot of opportunities. And so these corrections officers are uh, more susceptible to these types of schemes. And then you throw in the fact that we're talking about the D.C. jail. Yeah. Most of the corrections officers at the D.C. jail live in D.C., so in some cases, they are they are uh, responsible for inmates that they grew up with. Oh man! And yeah. and it's from a, so from a personal standpoint, it's even harder uh, for for these corrections officers to resist to give into this temptation of helping out these inmates. And you've seen it too. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in your career that small amounts of corruption, right? Taking a candy bar, taking a couple of bucks, letting somebody else pay for your meal. That has a way of leading to larger things down the road too. Yep. You want to catch, you're just, catch them on the way up. We, we yeah. spent a lot of time in an ethics class at the FBI Academy. And that's the slippery slope concept, which is just like you're saying, it starts off with a little bit and pretty soon uh, you're, you're in the pocket of this mobster or terrorist organization or whatever else. All right. So here we go. Number two, number two. Who should we report this to if our podcast webpage was hacked and the cyber criminal did a small amount of damage? What would happen after it's reported? So again, all these types of cyber incidents should be reported to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center at ic3.gov. If you have a, local, a relationship with the FBI, like obviously you all do, you would contact us. So when I say us, I mean the preferably the private sector coordinator, me, one of the reasons why this role of private sector coordinator was established by the FBI just about five or six years ago, so it's a relatively new position, but the director wanted a one-stop shop for organizations uh, so that they, regardless of the type of incident that they suffered, whether it was uh, a terrorist incident, some kind of fraud scheme, the theft of, of intellectual property or data, they had one person at the FBI that they could contact. And so if I'm contacted, in this case, obviously it's a cyber incident. So I would put you in touch with the cyber squad. And then the cyber squad supervisor would evaluate the information that you provided. And then based on uh, resources, loss amount uh, and, and other considerations, the cyber squad supervisor would determine whether or not to open up an investigation. I got a, um, along that same line, you mentioned 
that you, you're you, you kind of see it all. How much how much is uh, is I'll call it cyber related these days? Almost, almost everything, literally really? almost every really? case that we Man. work has at least some kind of a cyber nexus. So the FBI broadly div, uh, differentiates its cyber investigations, breaks them up into, into two different types. There are the intrusions, which are typically associated with ransomware, theft of intellectual property, that sort of thing. The, the breaches is where we're focused on. And then everything else is a cyber enabled crime. So this is a, a crime where the bad actor used uh, the uh, computer in the commission of the crime, but the intrusion wasn't the focus of the illegal activity. Yeah. It was uh, some kind of a wire fraud scheme, for example, or uh, in the case of, of uh, d domestic terrorists, it could be they are exchanging uh, communications uh, via you know, text or, or, or phone, or they're, they're moving money around on online payment systems and whatnot. So again, they're using the computer to carry out that crime, but it's not an intrusion. So it, we would still work that investigation and we would have assistance from the cyber squad, but they're not looking at it from the intrusion aspect. Uh, they're looking at it in, in terms of there's some digital evidence okay. that we want to collect and review that's related to this crime. That's when they, the, our computer scientists and our cyber agents step up so that they can collect that evidence. Yeah, kind of like a, a, there's cyber crime and then there's crimes in cyberspace, in and through cyberspace. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay, here we are, number three. Now this doesn't have to be related to your work, but what's the most impressive thing you've seen while working at the FBI? So in, and I can't remember what year it was, around 2014, 2015, uh, FBI Tampa had a domestic terrorism case on, on a guy named Marty Winters. And, and there's, I say the name because it's, it's uh, an adjudicated case and there's, uh, there's some information out there in the public domain about it. Uh, but Marty was the leader of a local militia in Hillsborough County. Now, Florida is an interesting state, to put it mildly. Not, not, now, let me say that I've lived in Florida for 20 years total. And and uh, and I I love the, the Tampa area. Florida is my favorite place place to live. So certainly nothing yeah. against Florida. And, and just but remember, there are some... just remember, we don't have the meth addicted alligators. That's not us. <laughs> that's I think that's Louisiana or Alabama. I just want that, that noted. That that's not us. But my my uh, love of Florida aside, there are some strange people in in Florida. You know, Florida is interesting for a number of different reasons, but one of them is you've got your major metropolitan areas, Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, and then you get out into some of the hinterlands and you're like, you're, you're, you're out, out in the wilderness, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> you're, you're out, you're out there in the hinterlands. You're out there in the and, frontier. Yeah, exactly. Frontier justice. Some, yeah. Some pretty crazy people out there, including, like I said, Marty Winters in Hillsborough County, which, you know, is one of the most populous counties in Florida. And so Marty Winters had a militia band put together and, and they were um, prepping for the day when the government would come and take away their land and their, you know, all, all the other stuff that these local militia often fear. Uh, you know, they, they didn't believe in the authority of the U.S. government. So uh, they and he got some of his neighbors to jump on board with him. So we had an investigation, FBI Tampa Division, and uh, we did a takedown of Marty Winters and, and some of his um, militia. and because these are, so they reportedly had um, weapons caches buried in their backyard. They had bunkers. They were preppers for you know, the doomsday when the federal government would you know, come in and, and try to, to try to arrest them. And well, and here we are the present, we're on doomsday, <laughs> right? Doomsday is here. Because these are obviously potentially dangerous individuals, FBI Tampa brought in SWAT teams from, uh, Tampa and Jacksonville and Puerto Rico and maybe other places as well. In addition, the hostage rescue team, which is our, uh, for lack of a better term, our elite SWAT team up at FBI headquarters, they came down as well. And we brought in uh, you know, the FBI armored vehicles, the, the Bearcats and, and the Humvees. Uh, there were, uh, I don't know how many FBI agents, well over 100 FBI agents, because Marty and, and some of his co-conspirators lived on this one street, again, in Hillsborough County. And so we shut down that whole street. We had, you know, the armored vehicles coming in to do the initial clear uh, before the, the other teams of the regular agents like me went in and executed these search warrants. But I, I have never seen a more, uh, a larger display of 
law enforcement, FBI, of course, uh, hardware. And it wasn't just the FBI, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office also uh, participated in that operation. But I've never seen a, a, a more impressive or larger display of uh, law enforcement personnel in terms of uh, number of people, the types of equipment that they had, you know, the resources that were brought in uh, to take down a, a potentially uh, dangerous domestic terrorist group. Jeez. Yeah, again, right down the street here in Hillsborough County. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but on a lighter subject, or maybe not, depends upon your answer. <laughs> who is your favorite Star Wars character? Uh, that would be Darth Vader. And really? my wife makes fun really? of me because, because she thinks I love black and black's my favorite color because all my t-shirts are black, but it has nothing. To, it's not my favorite color. Purple is my favorite color, but uh, good to know. anyway, good to know. so, so, so she would not be surprised if I said Darth Vader, because obviously he's usually dressed in black. Really? Darth Vader. I mean, from the law. Well, I guess, I mean, he is kind of the law, law and order type of guy, right? I mean, but that's not, but of course the rule of law doesn't really apply. It's more of the <laughs> no. enforcement. no. But the, but the reason he's my favorite is because at least the episodes one through six is really the story of Darth Vader, right? His rise to power, the corruption that ultimately turned him to the dark side. And the, and now we get to the reason why he's my favorite character. It's the redemption. At the end of episode six, when you know he looks at Luke and says, you, you've already saved me. And, and to me, that point hits home. That doesn't matter how bad of a person you are, what terrible things you've done in your life. If Darth Vader can be turned back to good, then none of us are beyond redemption. Yeah. Is there is there a uh, someone that you know that 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 you've seen that? I gotta save I you. To that you already have. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late to steal. If you like, that's right. If you're doing something that's bad, it's never too late to stop. That's every right, day that's you're right. making the decision to do bad every day. Yeah. Right? Yep. You can you can just simply wake up and decide today I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take steps to extricate myself and get help if I need to. And that, and that applies to, to anything. If you're in a job that you don't like, if you're in an abusive relationship, every morning is a new opportunity for you to do what you need to do to make things right. Yeah. And speaking of making things right, you have an opportunity to clear the record here. What are your thoughts on aliens? And have you encountered <laughs> a case where they were mentioned? I, I have not, although I did get a, actually, I got a complaint a couple of weeks ago. Uh, somebody emailed me about the aliens messing with uh, his head with the probe that they put into him during his uh, capture. I, I don't believe that that report was necessarily accurate, uh, but. Well, we all know because uh, they don't put the probe in your head. That's right. <laughs> but it, 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 to, to seal a quote from, from Jodie Foster, uh, if there were, if there wasn't life out there elsewhere, it would be an incredible waste of space. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't been following it probably as closely as I ought to, but I, there's, there's some joke out there, which is really, I, I, a comedian was talking about it is a few years ago, the government, the you know, federal government actually made it, they released publicly all the, you know, a bunch of the UFO files. And, mm -hmm. and it was, of course, it's in the middle of the pandemic. And, and this comedian goes, he goes, so let me just say how crazy it is. We're in the middle of this pandemic. Everybody's worried about this. The government actually says, yeah, UFOs are real. And everybody's like, ah, okay, whatever. But today, what about the mask problems? It's like, let's rewind that. Yeah. UFOs are real. And we're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, what does that say for like movies like Independence Day and Close Encounters? I mean, it's like, really? Are, is, are they done? Or is it nobody cares anymore? I mean, that's just. That's, that... I, you know, I, I, I saw an interesting program that talked about you know, the, the possibility of, of life on other planets and, and if they ever came to earth, what they would do. And, and it was interesting because it talked about it from a scientific perspective. And, and basically they said that if they're going to come to earth, it's not going to be to fight us. It's it's because that would take, you know, such an incredible amount of resources and, and, and whatever they, they would be coming probably for uh, other peaceful means. They're not going to launch this huge invasion force like you'd see in, in, the, in the movies. Yeah. Unless you're, unless they're coming, through a wormhole to take over the time stone or <laughs> I, yeah. That's it. That is it. Yeah. When you think about what our nations, I mean, that was then, I think that was Nat Bar Nate Bargatze, Ernie. That's right. Exactly. Ernie. Yes. He was like, yeah, it was the yeah. third most important thing all year. And you're like, how is this not the first most important <laughs> thing? But, <laughs> but it's a good example of like, yeah, it, it, everyone was more excited about it being a mystery. And then when the, you know, he, or fine, here's the video. It's true. We don't know what this thing is. 
everyone just loses interest. Yeah, it's like, People oh, are more obsessed about the mystery of what's being withheld from them than when they get the data, what they're actually going to do with it. Yeah. Right. It I mean, was all can, air force stuff anyway. Right. So, but yeah, well, there's, you know, it's, it, it's pretty telling when they have a, a term for it. I forget what it, but it's things fall. It's like things falling off aircraft. It's actually what it's actually like the term. So yeah, apparently it happens enough that they got a term for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. So, well, that concludes this portion of the uh of the show uh, andy thanks so much for joining us if uh, our listeners out there would like to connect with you or the fbi how, how do they go about doing that aside from uh, reporting it via the uh, the ic3 so we have a uh, a tampa outreach email address so if you go onto the fbi tampa website you can fill out a request uh you know to be contacted by the fbi for some sort of an outreach whether it's just a liaison meeting or a presentation uh so folks uh, can go onto the fbi tampa website and uh, click on that link to send an email to the uh, tampa outreach group which includes myself well that brings us to the end of our program and thank you for joining us first and foremost i have to thank my co-host jack clavy and also special thank you to our guest andy sakella he's a guy who proves that while you don't have to be a nuclear scientist to be the FBI's private sector liaison, it probably couldn't hurt. So remember, rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required Podcast. And you can find us on social media at No Password Pod. And if you'd like some show swag, just ask and we'll hook you up. I'm Ernie Ferrasso, and thank you for listening. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required Podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Second Watch. If you would like to learn more about the show, visit our website at cyberflorida.org pod. And if you still need more show content, check out our social media at NoPasswordPod.